So the garden writes the menu, the chef doesn't, the gardener does. And then the gardener's also at the whim of, of nature. Today on Dirty Linen, we are heading over to WA, something that I confess we probably don't do enough. So if you are in WA or you are a fan of a restaurant, cafe, winery in WA, and you reckon they should be on Dirty Linen, please don't hesitate to hit us up. Uh, this podcast is inspired by Max Wienhausen, great food writer. I am a big fan of Max's and he put up a post recently about some movements at Millbrook Winery. So today we are chatting to Guy Jeffries, a previous WA Chef of the Year, who is stepping out of his role as exec chef at Millbrook and the group, um, the Fogarty Group, uh, which owns Millbrook and a couple of other businesses, um, and handing over the reins to Justin Wong, who is a previous guest on Dirty Linen. Uh, I'm really looking forward to chatting to Guy about uh, the way he's run such a project focused kitchen at Millbrook. Guy, welcome to Dirty Linen. Hi Danny, thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for joining us. It uh, seems like a big time at Millbrook and for yourself. Tell us about the changes. Yeah, so I've been at Millbrook for 13 years now. Pretty, pretty good stint for a chef. A uh, couple of years is uh, what I was expecting out of management chefs that were coming through with me. So. I love it out. I love it out there. I still love it out there. It was just felt that it was time for a change. So, as you uh, said, I'm stepping back from being the executive of the group um, and the the daily the daily grind and uh, making sure that everything's happening day to day and going on long service leave for the rest of the year and then coming back next year in a different role where I'll be uh, focusing on doing some things that. I uh, never got a chance to do because I was too busy with the day-to-day -day with the group and uh, doing some cooking classes and some events uh, for across the whole Fogarty brand um, and, yeah, having a, having a bit of uh, family time. Wow, I love that. And just the words long service leave and chef um, aren't – aren't ones that you hear together all that often. So, yeah, I'm really excited to chat to you today about, you know, what you've been doing at Millbrook and, and across the group, but also this idea of longevity in the career sense, because it's something that, you know, is a really tricky thing for a lot of people um, who have, yeah, applied their trade in such physical work. Um, not everybody can do that forever. Uh, but let's start, let's sort of frame this chat with um, – with a description of Fogarty and, and what the group is, can you can you set it up for us? Yeah, well, they're a wine group, uh, own multiple uh, wineries and vineyards around Australia. Tasmania is well, Lowestoft. Uh, they own that, which just won the Jimmy last week with their Pinot, and then Dalwini over in the Hunter Lakes. Uh, sorry, Lakes Folly in the Hunter. Dalwini over in uh, Yarra, Yarra, I believe. Um, and then lots and lots in West Australia. So Deepwoods, Millbrook, Smithbrook, Evans and Tate. I've probably missed uh, another 10. Um, so, yeah, so predominantly a wine, wine uh, family-focused group. And then Millbrook obviously offers... Uh, a little bit of everything that the group encompasses in the way of vines, wines, property, views, food, and uh, fun times. 
<laughs> Don't forget the fun times. So um, Millbrook is in Jarradale, about an hour south of Perth. Set that up for us, Guy. What's it like at Millbrook? And, and tell us about, yeah, how you connected the the kitchen and the garden. Uh, sorry, the kitchen. Yeah, the kitchen and the garden. Yeah, well, Millbrook's uh, close to everything, but far from far away. Uh, it, it's just yeah, it's pretty much forty minutes from from any civilization, I suppose, of uh, like a town uh, like yeah Perth or Fremantle or Mandra. Um, so yeah, it's close to everything. But then we're out in the hills, and I used to live and work down in Margaret River, and it feels like you're in Margs. It, it doesn't feel like you're in the Swan Valley. It's beautiful rolling hills. It's Jarra forests, uh, clay, which is you know great. Great soil for for growing vegetables and vines, and I took the job there, yeah, thirteen years ago with the vision of growing produce to use in the restaurant because I was working at great restaurants but using this, you know, garbage veggies. Um, and in my own backyard at home, we were growing heirloom vegetables and feeding the family and had a few fruit trees. And I just thought if I could do that on a bigger scale. So you got to also think, you know, 13 years ago, uh, especially in WA, it were, you couldn't buy heirloom vegetables. You couldn't buy quality quality vegetables. We had amazing cheeses and proteins and seafood. Like it's all there, still is. But the vegetable scene was not a thing at all. And so that's was the the whole idea that I had uh, back then as a as a young chef to taking on my first head chef role I thought that'd be my shtick and my niche and what I would go for and uh, yeah so yeah that's what that's what we did and and I, I, I took the job there the Fogarty's were all about wanting to use the property to grow vegetable as well and um, the owner's son was is the chief viticulturalist John and he is he was living on the property at the time and there was a little vegetable garden and I when I started there I said you know let's make this bigger and you know John just Put the got the tractor out and off off he went and yeah got this beautiful big one acre vegetable patch in the middle of the orchard and that's just what we did. I planted the first seeds in in February of two thousand and ten, uh, getting ready for winter, and then yeah, fast forward I think five years later after that, um, I actually moved onto the property and that's when everything started changing. Uh, mainly for me, but also for the garden, because that's when you know I used to substitute vegetables with what we were growing from the market. I would call into the local market near where I was living and g- grab some stuff. And then I thought, well, now I'm living out here. I'm not going to be able to just drop into that market. So I need to put everything in to the garden here. And then, you know, gardens take a little while. So it's, we moved in in April. And then by the end of that year, uh, we had not bought any fruit or vegetables for the restaurant. And it was all grown there and have maintained and continued that until uh, still going. Wow, that's really, really interesting because, I mean, I, I suppose in those days, the idea that a restaurant would grow all its own vegetables was um, pretty radical. But when you think about a winery restaurant, it shouldn't be that radical. When you think about they're showcasing 
other produce that they're growing themselves, um, why would they be serving stuff in the restaurant that's from far afield? That's right. And you need you need the land to do it. And, and uh, you know, when you're out in the country, you've got the land. I would say probably uh, to answer your question, why, aren't, why isn't everybody doing it? Um, you know, there's a few people doing it now. Uh, back when, back then, there wasn't very many people, uh, very many winery restaurants. But I think the answer is it's, it's, it's expensive and it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, as a very beginning vegetable grower myself, I can attest that it's hard even doing it on an extremely tiny scale. Um, tell me about some of the challenges and joys along the way. Oh, just... Uh, clay breaks your back and sand breaks your heart so we're lucky to have been on clay but yeah my back's not not the best for it after 13 years um and just trial and error in the beginning uh, of of planting and knowing what uh, is is going to grow in your little microclimate uh so things for example i was growing at home uh, and you know, an hour away in the Swan, I was living in the Swan Valley at the time when I first started. They things that I could grow there wouldn't grow very well at Jaredale, and then vice versa. So just getting to know your environment and what grows well was probably the biggest learning curve. And so we just grew a little bit of everything to start, figured out what went well, and then dialed back and and uh, con- now concentrate and have educated guesses on what does and has grown uh, performed well in the in the past. And what are some of your f- favourite crops, like your real successes, things that you, I don't know, that you've either f- worked hard to make work or that just absolutely thrive in that environment? Uh, tomatoes in summer for, for me uh, uh, are my favourite summer thing. Uh, we, we've got lots of different heirlooms that we've been saving and we've culled that down to about just 12 that perform really well. And they're also quite needy, the tomato plant. They, they require lots of manicuring and staking and, and uh, management and crop rotation and mulching. And they're, they're quite needy, but uh, when you pick off a tomato in the, in the hot summer sun and, and put it on a plate, uh, it's quite delicious. And... Yeah, and then each well, I suppose each season I have my favourite favourite things. Um, so yeah, but tomatoes in summer, broad beans in spring, winter. I'm a big fan of broccoli, side shooting broccolis, and autumn. What am I going to pick for autumn? Uh, probably paprikas. Mm. And Guy, tell me about how you've run the menu with this, um, yeah, direct connection to the garden. And you know, I suppose, what have you had to explain to chefs that come into the business about how things work differently? So the garden writes the menu, the chef doesn't, the gardener does, and then the gardener is also at the whim of of nature. So, so Justin, who's the head chef, and Mitchell, who is the head gardener. So every Thursday afternoon, so we're shut on Tuesday, Wednesdays, right? So every Thursday afternoon, the two of those, the t- those, those two guys and, well, and used to be me as well, um, would go down the garden with a beer in the afternoon uh, after work and have a walkthrough. And Mitchell uh, would tell, tells Justin, this is 
finishing, you know, and physically looking at it, obviously. This is finishing, this is coming on, uh, you, this is in a glut and walk through the whole garden. This is what I've planted, yada, yada. And then Justin takes all that, thinks about what he needs to use and then out of the garden. And then that is the menu for the week after. And then on Monday, on Sunday before, uh, after service, Justin will write up, yeah, I want this, 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 and this. Um, but it's not like I want five fennel and, you know, it's like all the fennel that needs picking. And he already knows what that is because he was in the garden on Thursday looking at it. And so then that menu, and then when we come back to work uh, after Monday, uh, after the two days off on Tuesday, Wednesday, then Mitchell's picked all the vegetables and they're in the cool room ready to go and the team gets prepping and that's the menu. And then it just keeps happening uh, every, yeah, every week like that. And what kind of, what's the difference, do you think, when you're eating like that or creating a menu like that? You know, what would what would diners experience differently? They, we have a lot of customers that will come uh, four times a year to experience each vegetable, uh, each season, because, you know, we don't have tomatoes on the menu at the moment because we don't have tomatoes coming out of the garden. But if you come in January... And February, then yeah, you'll probably get tomatoes on a few dishes. Um, so yeah, they're just what they can expect is um, some uh, beautiful produce that's that's come from our garden as the highlight of of each dish. And what about the chefs? You know, a chef that's been working around the place, different types of restaurants, then comes to you. I mean, what what happens to their cooking journey? Well, hopefully, um, hopefully they gain an appreciation for vegetables as as well as as meat. Uh, you know, we we'll, we get in whole pigs and 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 butcher them and whole fish and all that sort of stuff, like the whole nose to tail, which is, you know, has been a thing for for, for years. Um, but yeah, but do it treating the vegetables the same and and not wasting the carrot tops, like making something out of the carrot tops, you know. Beetroots come with leaves, you know, like when you buy a beetroot from the shop, it doesn't usually have any stalks or leaves. So just utilising and, 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 and using everything uh, to its potential. And it's almost like when, you know, if we've got a dish on with beetroot, for example, there's, there's obviously the, the, the bulb um, and then, but then there's also the leaves uh, in that dish. And then like when we've peeled the, the, the beetroot, um, you know, we'll dehydrate that into like a dust or something, just using the one vegetable in multiple ways. But on the menu, it says like beetroot and lentils or something. <laughs> wow, it's so understated, but so much thought and honouring that goes into it. Um, this, I reckon, leads us pretty neatly to No Waste Mondays. Tell us about that guy. Yeah, it's a juggernaut. Um, it's really cool. I've, it's it's one of the one of the things that I'm uh, very proud of 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 sort of creating. Um, so it was a while ago of. You know, I've lost track over the 13 years, but I want to say probably six years ago, um, Katrina Lane was the venue manager at the time and we had a really awesome working relationship, really like-minded in um, just how we approached restaurants and food and and things like that and, and came up with the idea to – we used to be shut on Monday, Tuesday 
and came up with the idea to open on Monday and use up what was left from the week's service to before we went on days off uh, to then come back to, you know, and, and when we left, there was no food going in the bin because when you're running an a la carte menu, you, you'll need to go in with X amount of serves on that last day and then, you know, you're not going to sell exactly 15 pork that day, you know what I mean? So, um, so what we came up with was just, yeah, trying to minimize the amount of food that was being wasted at the end of a Monday. And so every table... We write a, write a menu for every single table on Sunday afternoon with what's left because we might have, I don't know, a, a pork shoulder, two, two fish and, and a duck or something and these are the veggies that are floating around and coming up with a menu for each different table to utilise that and writing it all out. It's actually quite a process. Um, but then it sort of also evolved over the years into taking on that real no waste ethos of, you know, like when we make the butter, we keep the buttermilk and then we'll use the buttermilk on Monday. You know, you keep you uh, serving the fish heads on, uh, on Monday and, you know, the fillet during the week and using the head and the wings on a Monday and just keep pretty much keeping all the byproducty stuff of the, of the service and of the, the weekly service to then utilize in a more, casual um thing on a monday and it's yeah it's gained pretty good momentum um the next available table is february i believe oh my goodness so is that the hardest table to book in the restaurant uh yeah books out about two to three months in advance um for the mondays and uh yeah so it's yeah it's it was it's really heartwarming to walk out and the sh- and like you know I used to carry the food out because by the time you tell the floor staff all the different things that you're serving to you know all the different tables because there's like 20 different things it's just easier to run it yourself and quickly tell the customer so it's actually really um yeah re- really proud moment for when I look into that dining room on a Monday lunch in the middle of Jaredale and it is chockers full every single Monday. Um, yeah, it's yeah, that's probably one of the coolest coolest parts of, of the last 13 years. It's interesting that you do still run a la carte um, on your regular menu. A lot of restaurants that do work, you know, garden to plate also run a set menu be- just because of exactly what you've said. You know, you, you don't want stuff left over. Why have you stayed a la carte? Uh, I like choice. I like I like I like the customers to eat like I like to eat. Um, I'm not a I'm not a Digo dude. I'm not really into that. Um, so we have a a set entree, but it's all for the table on a normal day. But it's all shared. So um, there's like four dishes that will go out. So that way we can use up the glut of, of the vegetables that we have, all the different ones. And then you get a choice of main course because, I don't know, I just think that it's nice to have a choice. And then, uh, yeah, and then if you want dessert, you you don't have to, but if you want dessert, then you get a a choice of dessert as well. And, yeah, and then just with that Monday, though, that's how it opens that up to uh, not be throwing anything away. And I think even if you did have like a set menu, there still would be wastage of food for sure. 
Mm, interesting. So, Guy, let's talk about longevity and, um, yeah, this miracle that you've got long service leave. I love it. Uh, tell us, you know, you're sort of at a turning point in your career. Tell us about the trajectory and, and how you how you think about longevity in a career that can be so difficult. When I took the job 13 years ago, I didn't know that I would be there for 13 years. I took the job to, to get the garden up and running. And then I just, I just loved it so much. And I think that all that hard work that was put in just kept, it just kept it really interesting. And it was, you know, the, the Fogarty's have been really great to me and my family. Like, you know, like I raised my kids out there and, and my wife, we were living out there and, and they, you know, by living out there, uh, it, it, it felt like, you know, obviously it's not mine monetary, but it felt like I treated it. They, the respect they showed me, I gave them back by treating it like it was mine. And, um, and then that became like a lifestyle. And I feel that the more energy and effort you put into something, you, you, you want to keep seeing it through and making it bigger and better. And, and then when you do make it bigger, bigger and better then I, I felt that I wanted to, prove that it wasn't just a flash in the pan and maintain and, and then stayed on for longer to maintain it just to prove that it I, it could be done and we were doing it like not buying the veggies and stuff like that um so yeah i just think that if you in in my earlier career i would always do at least two years i thought was fair to see how a business ran um, as a sous chef. I'd do two years here, two years there. Um, and I think that that's fair. But then when I got to where I was comfortable to be a head chef and set out and had my idea of what I wanted to do, just I think it was a good idea to just immerse everything I had into it and build it to be the best that I could make it myself. But as you've touched on, you know, there was a lot that was coming from you, but you did need to have that commitment and backing of the owners. I mean, do you think it's possible to play it the way that you have in other smaller businesses? Or do you think that having that big structure behind you is what's made the difference? I think you could do it with a small business. It's But, but having the backing of, of a of a of a big group is of a, uh, of the Fogarty's was, yeah, I couldn't have done it without them. You know, like, firstly, you have to have the land, you know. Um, so, you know, I can't afford a big big chunk of old of land out in, in, in a winery, you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, and I think that their support is the only reason that I could have done that for sure. Do you sort of, I mean, fear for independent restaurants because of things like this, that it is it is hard for people to create a viable long term career when yeah you don't have those resources. I th- I, I think that you could still definitely do it. Just don't put a one acre garden in. Make your shtick something else. You know, like <laughs> something that's more viable for whatever you are. Like whether it be a you know whatever. I'm not going to come up with someone with your idea of what you want to do, but. I don't know if you want to specialize in butchering whole butchering whole pigs then you know that is something that you could do or if you want it to be a sustainable seafood restaurant or whatever you whatever it is you're setting out to achieve 
um, then yeah, you can definitely put everything you have into it. Um, you know, like like I ate somewhere in Japan, and the dude still reckons he couldn't cook eel, and it'd be as good as he could, and he'd been doing it for sixty years. So. That is such a good point and I absolutely love that you've brought it to that and just that dedication to craft, um, yeah, which I guess ju- can just be a man in a pan. Um, it doesn't have to <laughs> be large scale. So, yeah, I love that answer. Um, Guy, I'm interested in this idea of doing cooking classes. Is that about equipping or skilling up people in particular techniques that you've um, learned over the years? Like what do you want people to, to get from your cooking classes? Yeah, definitely. I, I want them to understand basics because um, pretty much like the food that, that I was doing at Millbrook is very basic. It's <clears throat> it produce driven and not faffed with and not chefed with. Like one thing I would always tell a new chef that was coming in, with, like especially a head chef, was, you know, your job is to not stuff this produce up. Don't go trying to be clever with it. It is what it is. Just, you know, make it make it tasty and, and don't try to do chefy crap to it. Um, so with the cooking classes, yeah, I, I just want them to be, they're sort of, you know, very small scale and it, it's, it'll be with me and, you know, you have my undevoted attention and I'll be showing and, and, you know, it's hands on as well, probably just for like 10 people. Um, and then, yeah, at Millbrook, you know, we'll, we'll probably go for a little garden, walk through the garden, grab something, and then concentrate on basics. Uh, like we might do a vegetable preservation class. My, my wife, um, in her spare time, uh, loves, loves making a bit of pottery. So I've got a – she's knocking up some vegetable fermentation crocs and, you know, it'll be like, yeah, we'll pick some cucumbers out the garden, show you how to ferment them. We'll concentrate on doing a few other things, some kraut and some pickling, some jamming, whatever it needs to be. Um, and then take your croc home and uh, in the meantime, we'll sit down and have some lunch and eat some of the ferments and pickles that I've got from last year and glass of wine, happy days, just basic things like that. So, Wow, it sounds idyllic um, and I'm yeah keen to know how I can book in. So let's uh, stay in touch about that. Um, no, that sounds so good, Guy. And how are you feeling about, you know, making this decision um, and, yeah, pivoting to what's next? Yeah, it was not an easy decision. Uh, it was, it's not something that, that, that me and my wife took lightly. Um, we sort of did have a goal. Uh, we had a five-year plan, and and it, it did involve me leaving Millbrook. So, and then uh, it wasn't it wasn't going to happen for another couple of years. But uh, my wife um, unfortunately uh, got some some bad news with breast cancer at the start of this year, and she's she's fine now. Thank God, uh, 100% clean. Um, but uh, just living out there and having to go get the, the radiation and you know daily for months, um, just realised how far away we actually uh, were from from uh, civilization, I suppose. Um, so that was a big uh, part in 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 the decision of just you know enjoying life together a bit more and being a bit closer to family and friends, I suppose. Wow, Guy, I'm really sorry that you've been through that and, and 
Yes, and similarly, so glad that um, your wife is is well now. That's that's great. But it's yeah, it's amazing. Life can throw something at you and uh, really clarify what you want to do or you know reshape your goals. Hey, definitely, definitely. Wow. Um, well, I really appreciate you taking the time to have a chat to us at this, yeah, really interesting moment in your career. Congratulations on everything that you've achieved. Enjoy the break and the family time. And yeah, uh, I can't wait to hear more about what you throw yourself into next year. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much for uh, for getting WA on the phone for, for a change by the sounds of it. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. Well, thanks to Max for that. So shout out to Max again. Thanks, Guy. Have a good one. See ya. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This.